Hello, I'm Alec, and this is Scandal 101. Happy Friday or whatever day it is for you. Thanks so much for tuning in. Uh, normally, I start the episodes off with a with an update on scandals I've seen in the news recently, and there's so many to talk about, but I'm going to start it off differently this week, mainly because on Tuesday of this week, it was my... Uh, little brother's birthday. And a couple of years ago, unfortunately, he passed away. So he would have been 22 on Tuesday. And I just want to tell you um, a quick story about him and like a positive memory just to remember him. Um, We worked at McDonald's both of us did when we were teenagers in high school. And without fail, about once a week, or like if it was during the summer, multiple times a week, we would say work 7am to 4pm. And like 401 would hit. And our dad would text us, hey, do you guys want to run by the store to grab milk or whatever? (laughs) And At the time, it was like a fun little bonding moment because we didn't always see eye to eye, but we were both like, we have to go to the store again. Like, what? Why couldn't this be put on the grocery list? And of course, it was more of just, we just worked nine hours and now we have to go to the store. But to be fair to my dad, our McDonald's was literally a parking lot away from a grocery store. So it wasn't out of our way, but we were just annoying little teenagers. Not annoying, but we just didn't want to do anything else. So even though that sounds like I'm just ranting about my dad, which I'm not, because first of all, he listens. Hey, dad. But it's just a fun memory I have with him and just a fun little bonding thing that we got to share after work. So happy belated birthday to Chase, and yeah, just happy birthday. Okay, so this episode, I mainly relied on one source, and that is because this article is one of the best written articles I've ever read. It is by Corey Mead for Medium.com, published in August of 2021, but I did use a couple of of other articles to um, help create this episode. An article by John Johnson from Newser.com, an article from KAKE News from 2019, an article titled The Poet from the True Crime Database, and then an article from the Daily Mail by Erica Tempesta from April of 2021. This episode is titled The Poet of Wichita, and it will become evidently clear why this is titled it. It's a combination of scandals. It's a combination of true crime. It's the best combination in the world. So here we go. 
Our story, it takes place in Wichita, Kansas, and the story starts in June of 1977. Ruth Finley, who is a 47-year-old mother to two grown sons. She's an employee of a telephone company. She was home late one night after a hard day. She was home by herself. Ruth's husband, named Ed, he had collapsed earlier in the day from an apparent heart attack, but he was spending the night at the hospital to get checked out by doctors. Ruth, being home alone, it's never an easy feeling to be home alone, but also... It's one of the first nights that she's home alone, her sons are out of the house, her husband's in the hospital, so she's going to turn on the radio to try to find some comfort. But turning on the radio really didn't provide much comfort at all, because there was something going going on in Wichita at the time that was all over the news. The BTK Strangler. She was hearing news reports about the BTK Strangler being in the area, and she's a woman home alone, so of course this is going to be terrifying. So she switches the radio station to try to get some music. As she's trying to find some music, some more positive news other than the BTK Strangler, the phone rings. Of course, she's worried that this is going to be bad news from the hospital, especially this late in the evening, like who else is going to be calling? So she answers the phone, nervously says hello. The person on the other end asked her a question that she wouldn't have ever guessed. It definitely was not the hospital staff. The voice on the other end of the phone asked, quote, Is this Ruth Smock from Fort Scott, Kansas? End quote. And again, her married name is Finley, but her maiden name was Smock. And she was surprised because, one, it's her maiden name, and two, she hadn't lived in Fort Scott for quite some time. So she responded most likely nervously with, yes, yes it is. And after she confirmed that, yes, this is Ruth, the voice said, quote, I know all about that night, end quote. Though the statement itself wasn't specific, the statement didn't need to be any more specific for Ruth. Ruth knew what the person on the phone was talking about. She listened with shock and fear as the person on the the other end of the phone started reading an old newspaper article from October 15th, 1946, that in part said, quote, Branded on both thighs by a hot flat iron, apparently by a sex maniac, Ruth Smock, 16-year-old Fort Scott High School girl, was resting today at the home of her parents following an attack upon her early last night, end quote. Ruth, as this is being read to her, remembered that horrible day. She had just come inside after getting some groceries when she heard the door open behind her, and suddenly she was grabbed from behind by a tall man. Ruth fought to get away. She pushed her attacker away. She pushed her thumb into the man's eyes, but the man came prepared. He had brought a chloroform rag and put it over her mouth. The last thing that she remembered was the man grabbing a hot flat iron and heating it over the stove. After she woke up, she had first-degree burns on her thighs and scratches on her face, arms, and legs. And from what I could find, it did not seem like Ruth was sexually assaulted in this childhood attack. 
the only thing I could really find was her burns and then the scratches on her body. So that was that horrific event back from 1945. So going back to the phone call that's currently happening, the person on the phone asked Ruth if she still wore her quote-unquote brand. Confused why someone was calling and bringing this up, this horrible event, the person on the other end of the phone said that they worked for a construction company and had found this newspaper clip in a wall while tearing down an old house. He then threatened and said that he would spread the news of the attack if she didn't give him money, and he also said, quote, I know where you work, end quote. Ruth, in a panic, hung up the phone, and this stressful event, on top of an already stressful day with her husband being in the hospital, she had a massive headache, so she went to bed and basically fell right asleep. Ed, Ruth's husband, ended up being in the hospital for about another week, and it turned out to be a previous injury that was there from a car accident that had happened in the past, not a heart attack, but he was in the hospital f for about a week, and while he was in the hospital, no other calls came, and once Ed came back home, things turned back to normal. Later that summer, and just as a reminder, this first event took place in June of 1977. So later that summer, Ruth was in her office at the Southwestern Bell Telephone Company when an envelope came across her desk. This wasn't unusual as she was a secretary there. The envelope had her name on it, so she opened it, and when she did, that horrible night flashed back. Inside the envelope was the newspaper clipping of her horrific childhood attack. She threw the clipping and the envelope away with some fear and just hoped that that would be the end of it. Spoiler alert, it wasn't. Soon, calls started to come to the house from the same man, and when the man would call and Ruth would answer, she would hang up as soon as she heard the voice. If Ed answered the phone, the caller would immediately hang up. And it, at this point, she hadn't told Ed about the calls, and I don't know if this was because she was embarrassed, if she didn't want to worry Ed, but at this point, Ed did not know about the calls, and whenever the person called, she just hung right up. She wasn't going to entertain it. To talk about Ruth and Ed just a tiny bit more, they were a fairly normal couple, they had a happy marriage, they didn't cause trouble with the neighbors or anybody in town, and Ruth, she didn't seemingly have anybody that she had wronged in her life, so it didn't make sense why this was happening to Ruth. Unfortunately, it wasn't only the calls that were going to take place. In August of 1977, about two months after the first call, Ruth was window shopping downtown in Wichita when all of a sudden, a man started walking right beside her. The man then said, quote, You've done such a good job working this week. You can take the weekend off. End quote. Ruth looked over at the man, and she noticed the man was in his late 40s, was about 5'9", skinny with black to graying hair, and he was wearing a plaid shirt, jeans, and white shoes. The man continued with, quote, You work for the telephone company, don't you? What do you do there? Are you an operator? End quote. Ruth wasn't responding, she just wasn't entertaining any of this, she kept walking, but the man was right alongside her, and then he asked, quote, Would you like to go to Las Vegas sometime? Ruth, she kept walking, and then the man said, quote, the camera reflects the true quality of one's soul, end quote. 
creepy. Ruth eventually responded, somewhat annoyed, and said that, I'm waiting for my husband. The man responded, are you still married? And then he grew a little bit scary with his tone. He then said, quote, I like your face. I'll see you again. You can count on that. Some people's fantasies are other people's nightmares. End quote. Ruth, after this interaction, was wondering if this was the person who had been calling her, but she couldn't be sure. She couldn't tell if the voice was the same, so she wasn't 100% sure. But regardless, this guy was creepy. When her and Ed finally met up, she told Ed about the guy, but Ed reassured her that it was probably just some guy looking to pick up some girl. After that creepy interaction, things seemed to calm down for a little bit. She didn't have any more interactions with creepy men, nothing like that strange, uncomfortable day. Until June of 1978. She was again downtown shopping when she passed an alleyway between stores when someone reached out and grabbed her wrist. It was the man from the previous year, and he cried, quote, Ruth, get back here, you stupid bitch, and talk to me, end quote. Luckily, Ruth was able to break away, and she started running to the Macy's, where she went all the way to the top floor, the fifth floor. She had gotten all the way to the top before she realized where she was. She was just running, just trying to get away. After settling down, after some breathing, she called Ed to come get her. When Ed got there, she told him about the attack, and she had finally told him about the calls that had been taking place. After finding all of this out, Ed was of course worried, so Ed went to the police station to go file a report. Unfortunately, no action was taken by the police. In October, Ruth got sent a letter to her home with her name on it. Inside was a piece of paper that said, quote, fuck you, fuck the police, fuck the telephone company, end quote. It also demanded money or else Ruth would be hurt. She nervously waited for Ed to get home from work, and when he did, he insisted on going back to the police. They then went to the police on November 6th, and they were directed to Lieutenant Bernie Drowatsky, who had 34 years of experience. Ruth's case was going to get some special attention because the BTK Strangler was also known for sending threatening letters, and maybe this one was connected. Ruth told him about the calls, the letters, the creepy man, and how she couldn't think of anybody who would consider her an enemy. After hearing everything, Drowatsky wasn't super intrigued about the case. He had other violent cases on his plate, especially with tips rolling in about the BTK strangler. And as unfortunate as of a situation as this was, nothing really violent had happened in the case. And while threatening letters and calls aren't ideal, this case at the time didn't seem like much of a priority. It wasn't ignored, but it definitely wasn't on the front burner. About a week after going to the police, another letter came, and this one had a lot of spelling errors. It said, quote, I can tell if anybody is watching me. Don't be a dumb bitch again and blow this. I will try to be your friend, but when you are a dumb bitch, I don't like you. This time, you talk to me when I call you soon. End quote. 
and some examples of the spelling errors. Dumb was spelled D-U-M. Your was Y-U-R. Again was A-G-I-N and various other spelling errors like that. The letter also ended off with a poem that said, quote, Wherever you go on water or land, you still gotta pay or I tell about your brand. I am smart and know things to do. You talk to people I despise, like police lieutenant and telespies. End quote. Ruth brought this letter back to Drowatsky, and eventually more letters started to come to the house. And eventually a routine was established where Ed would bring the letters to Drowatsky and the letters would eventually be tested for fingerprints. All of these letters had spelling errors, they all talked about Ruth's brand, and on top of that, the phone calls continued. But again, eventually things stopped, things slowed down, so Ruth and Ed hoped this would be all over. Now it's November in 1978, and Ruth was downtown on her lunch break running errands. She was crossing a street when suddenly a car blocked her path. Ruth could only see an old woman far up the street, so she was basically alone. The man who had come at her twice before jumped out of the car and asked if she had his money. He kicked her hard in the shin, and then the man shoved her in the car, slammed the door, and drove away. Luckily, Ruth was able to get a good look at the car and knew what kind of car this was, a bluish-green 1964 Chevrolet Bel Air. There was another man driving the car, and the man that she knew as the creepy man, the person who she had interacted with in the past, he called the driver Buddy. When she looked at the door, the handle on the inside was broken, meaning that she wasn't going to be able to try to open it to escape. On the floor, there were cans, pieces of concrete, chains, rags, and the dash of the car had a bunch of white tape all over it, almost like it was taped back together, holding it together. The creepy man demanded Ruth to give him her purse, and inside he found some money and a safe deposit key and exclaimed, quote, we've struck it rich, end quote. He then found Lieutenant Drowaski's business card, and he got real mad. He picked up a piece of concrete from the floor and slammed it into Ruth's head, after which she fell back and was basically almost knocked out. She wasn't completely unconscious, but she was woozy, couldn't really see, couldn't really focus, stuff like that. The men, they kept driving, and at one point they said, quote, we'll get rid of her, but not here, end quote. She was terrified, but then she remembered that she had a can of mace in her purse and a little hidden pocket. But she didn't want to try and grab it, though, because she was scared that the men were going to do something and they likely would have noticed her reaching into her purse. Day turned to night and they kept driving randomly around the city when eventually she told her abductors that she needed to use the restroom. They laughed, so then she started to make herself gag and said that she was going to throw up if she wasn't able to go to the bathroom. They were basically like, uh, that's gross, so they found a small park, and before letting Ruth out, they made her take off her shoes and her sweater to make sure that she wouldn't run. Remember, this is late November in Kansas, the Midwest. One of the abductors says to her, uh, while he is walking her to a place to go to the bathroom, quote, I'll watch you and you'll watch me. Doesn't that sound fun? End quote. These people let her take her purse while she went to the bathroom, which in turn ended up being good for her. So 
As the man unzipped his fly to go to the bathroom, she dug out that can of mace and sprayed it at him. The man fell to the ground, coughing, and Ruth ran off barefoot into the dark night. Ruth, she found a large bush to hide behind, and she got down and hid. She hid and eventually heard one of the men say, quote, You'll freeze if we leave you here. Come get your shoes and your coat, and we won't bother you anymore. End quote. She didn't say anything. She stayed hidden, and her feet were slowly going numb in the cold winter night. Eventually, when the cold became too much to bear, she stood up and noticed that the car was gone. She then ran across the street to a liquor store and said that someone was after her and told the owner to call the police. She also asked the owner to call Ed, her husband, after they had contacted the police. Ed received the call and was relieved to hear that Ruth was okay. He had been worried when she was reported missing from work. They met at the police station and Lieutenant Drawatsky was now heavily invested in this. This was now a kidnapping case. He was slowly starting to think that perhaps the BTK Strangler could be involved in this. The next day, detectives drove down to the park, and they found Ruth's shoes and sweater, and they were able to see and trace Ruth's footprints, and it matched. It went right up to the bush. They ran a search on cars that matched the description, but there were no viable suspects that came up. After this attack, there was a lot of protection put around Ruth, especially during her lunch hours. There were two detectives that were invested in this case. They drove back to Fort Scott, where Ruth's first attack when she was a teenager was. And they went back there to see if they could piece anything together to see if there was any missing piece of the puzzle that they could find there. Detective Anderson, one of the detectives that went on the first trip, went back by himself a month later after the first trip. But despite their efforts, those trips didn't really reveal anything helpful. In December, Lieutenant Drawatsky received a letter that was accusing him of, quote, protecting a whore from death, end quote. Drawatsky was made furious by this letter. He had come to know Ruth and Ed and thought of them as good, kind, nice people who definitely did not deserve what was going on. Because of the increase in violence that Ruth had been facing, Ed would spend the night hiding in the backyard with a shotgun waiting for the attacker to come. So he was like, this attacker is not coming around here, not on my watch. Flashing ahead to the summer of 1979, the letters, they kept coming, and they were often written in rhymes, giving the author the nickname The Poet. The letters were violent, sexual, and disturbing, and one of the letters said, quote, The whore bore her guilt in the bed of slime from selling her ass and not charging a dime, slept with strangers in evil bed, enraged demon hunters saw blood was red, all bitches should keep their names and faces secret, end quote. Then, all of a sudden, in July of that summer, the letter stopped. Growing hopeful that this was over, Ed and Ruth had planned a trip to Colorado. Ruth, she needed a new pair of jeans to go on this trip, so she was going to head to the mall to get a pair on August 13th. And Ed, he was of course nervous about her going, especially with everything that had happened, but she was like, I'll be fine. It's a quick trip to the mall. I'll be in and out. 
It's the middle of the day. We're good to go. Ruth's trip to the mall, to Dillard's, it was a little longer than expected. And when she walked out of the Dillard's into the parking lot, it was dusk and the mall parking lot was nearly empty. Ruth, getting nervous by the situation, hurried to her vehicle and she almost made it to her car when she heard a man say, quote, Hey, Ruth, I didn't know you were going to make it so easy, end quote. She turned around and saw the creepy man from before. Ruth, she tried to get into her car, but before she could unlock the door, he slammed her up against the car. He said he was going to take her to a bridge, and so she fought back and broke free and tried to go around to the other side of the car. The man then pulled out an 8-inch knife and stabbed her twice in the back and once in the side. On the last stab, the knife got stuck inside of her and the man loosened his grip. She then ran to her car, got in through the passenger side door, and tried to roll up the window. The man, he reached his arm and hand in, but she was rolling up the window so quick, so he tried to pull his hand out, and on his way of pulling the hand out, the brown glove that he was wearing got pinched in the window. She sped off and with the glove still trapped in the window, and she had escaped. But as she was driving away, she looked down and saw the knife in her and saw lots of blood. She needed medical attention. She was driving and spotted a gas station and called 268-4181, the only police number that she knew. It was Drowatsky's boss, and when she called, she started to introduce herself before the voice said, Yeah, like, I know who you are, Ruth. What's going on? Ruth responded, quote, I've been stabbed, end quote. And just for reference, I was like, why didn't she call 911? So I looked it up. By 1987, which was about seven, eight years after this incident, only 50% of the United States had access to 911. So I don't know if her specific area had 911 or not, but she called the only police number that she knew. After Ruth had made it to the gas station and called, she was nervous that she was followed by the man. So she drove home to go to Ed. And Ed had been called by Jarotsky's boss, so when Ruth pulled up, Ed was aware of the situation. He drove her to the hospital to get some help. Ruth, she was treated at the hospital, and the news of her attack made it to TV, the newspaper, the local news. It was a huge story. Jarotsky stayed at Ed and Ruth's house for two days after Ruth got out of the hospital, but the man who stabbed Ruth never showed. Later that year, in September... Ed had come up with the idea of trying to talk to the man in the newspaper. So Ed posted something in the classified, basically like, hey, let's talk. And it worked. The poet started reaching out via the classifieds. And of course, as this is happening, everyone else who gets the newspaper is seeing this going on. So this case is becoming more and more public. More and more people are becoming intrigued at what is happening. On top of the newspaper thing, undercover officers start to accompany Ruth when she goes out, but luckily Ruth doesn't encounter anything, so the officers don't really have much to discover. Letters are continuing. There was a letter dropped on Ed and Ruth's front porch, and Ruth and Ed were reportedly hearing noises coming from their garage in the middle of the night. 
because police are not coming up with any new leads, they're going to try hypnosis to see if Ruth can remember anything while she's under the influence of hypnosis. Unfortunately, nothing really meaningful happens in this session, so that's a bust. In January of 1980, the case was taken over by Captain Mike Hill as Drawatsky was promoted to vice and organized crime. So we've got a new person for this case, and he's potentially going to be good. He's a new set of objective eyes for this case. He doesn't know Ed and Ruth as Drawatsky had, so perhaps this could lead to a solution. The poet quickly found out that there was a change in the case in the leadership and wrote a letter to Mike Hill and said, quote, there once was a captain who had an asshole for a heart, end quote. Just about a month ago on Christmas Eve, Ruth and Ed's phone lines had been cut for the second time, so when they were repaired, they were put underground and there was an alarm system installed on their back fence. Surveillance cameras were installed on their house and detectives were assigned to the house to watch the monitors 24 hours a day. Ruth, she was feeling guilty that all of this was happening, that these detectives had to sit and watch the monitors in their house, so she baked desserts, she reread some of the letters to them just to see if it could spark any new ideas. The letters continued and increased over the next couple of weeks, and at this point, police had looked into over 300 people, but no viable, no viable suspects had come up. Now, police were going to try something different. They put Ruth in a bulletproof vest and let her walk downtown while the area was swarming with plainclothes officers. Unfortunately, nothing came of it. The poet was becoming more ambitious and started sending letters to local businesses, including one to a mortuary saying that Ruth would be requiring their services soon and to reach out to Ruth. There was another letter sent to the health department that Ruth was spreading STDs around town. There was a letter sent to a flower shop ordering her or ordering the flower shop to send one black rose to Ruth. Horrible, creepy things like that. Police were continuing their efforts. They put a camera disguised as a bird installed in the backyard of Ruth and Ed's house to see if it would capture anything. But so far, nothing had really been found. There were suspicions around the BTK Strangler continuing because of repeated references in the letters to, quote, fox, end quote. And this was the poet saying, oh, I killed a fox, which seemed to refer to Nancy Joe Fox, who was BTK's most recent victim. As the letters continued, Ruth eventually received a letter postmarked from Oklahoma City. This was the first letter that was sent from outside of Wichita. There was hope that started to grow in the police department, especially when Oklahoma Police Department received a call about a man that matched the description of the poet. The man had worked in Wichita and was fired seven months ago and then moved to Oklahoma City. The man was flown back to Wichita for a police lineup, and Ruth said that while the person did look similar to the person, she was sure that he was not the poet. The poet continued to harass Ruth, such as leaving a bottle of urine on their porch, then a bag of poop, 
Molotov cocktails were left, the lock on their gate was broken, fireworks, cigarettes, and trash was were left in their mailbox. There was a rock found with a red bandana wrapped around it in the backyard. So just all of these random things kept happening to Ruth and Ed, including one time around Christmas time that year, Ruth and Ed were watching TV in their basement when all of a sudden, a wreath hanging from outside of their front window was lit on fire. Ed ran upstairs, put out the fire, and then ran off into the night with a pair of garden shears yelling that he was going to kill the poet. It's now the spring of 1981, so at this point it's been almost four years of this happening since the calls started, and police don't seem to be any closer to figuring out what's happening. Because this case had been in the public eye so much, the police are under a lot of pressure and a lot of scrutiny by the public wondering why hasn't the poet been caught, what's taking so long, just what's the issue here? Chief Richard Lemunyon, he was proud of the work that his detectives had put in, and yes, while it was frustrating that they hadn't found anything yet, he was certain that the police were doing all they could. This case had just kind of been in his department, but things got personal for the chief when Dorotsky came to him and said that the poet had sent a letter saying that after he had taken care of Ruth, he was going to take care of La Mignon's wife. La Mignon, of course, was angered by this. He was offended, so he took home the case file, all of the information with the case the following weekend to pour over the case and to look at this case and to see if he could see something that was missed. He hadn't interacted with Etta Ruth before, he was really an outside perspective coming into this investigation, and this was the first time he was going to have an in-depth look at everything. By the end of the weekend, he knew who the poet was. La Mignon, he called a meeting on Friday, September 11th, with 16 officers in a windowless basement in the courthouse to discuss the case. This needed to be secret. It was at this meeting where he would reveal the identity of the poet. He told his officers, the poet is Ruth Finley herself. Here's how he came to his conclusion. There were never any witnesses to her attacks, even though they were always in public places. Ed and Ruth lived on a dead-end street with little traffic, yet no neighbors, no any of the police who were stationed at the house ever saw the poet, nor did they find any footprints. Detectives only found Ruth's footprints in the park where she had supposedly been abducted and taken to, but yet she had said that there was a man who went to go pee with her, but they couldn't find those footprints. She said that she was struck in the face with concrete, yet her face had no matching injury. She called the police after she was stabbed rather than the emergency dispatch. And when she did that, she got out of the car to make the call and then supposedly got back into the car, all of this while having a knife sticking out of her body. Captain Hill got a letter about the command change pretty shortly after it happened, yet only Ruth Ed and the police knew about that change. After the bird camera was put in the backyard, the poet stopped showing up in the backyard. And then finally, the messages in the newspaper with Ed and the poet communicating would stop whenever Ed and Ruth were on vacation, and as soon as they returned, they started again. He pointed out that it is possible that this could be Ed, but he didn't think so. 
His objective look on the case made it seem so obvious, but to those who knew Ruth, it seemed insane. Ruth was nice, was kind, modest, and was just a normal person. How could this be? How could she do this? During that meeting with the officers, Lamagnon announced that they would they would do surveillance on Ruth to try to get proof that he was right. Surveillance of Ruth and Ed started on September 14th, and they were followed at all times. They were watched through cameras with long lenses, and after a few days, Ed drove up to a mailbox in a parking lot where Ruth was in the passenger seat. She reached out and dropped in some mail. Now, normally that's not suspicious, dropping off some mail, but it would be a few hours before the box could be opened. Inside the mailbox, there were two bill payments from Ruth and Ed, as well as two letters from the poet. Unfortunately, this wasn't good enough proof because a couple of hours had passed by and it was possible that someone else could have dropped in those poet letters. Several days later, on September 26th, Ed and Ruth went to the same mailbox. After they dropped in the mail, an officer then pulled up to the mailbox and blocked it off to ensure that no one else could drop in any letters. By the time it was opened, there were four letters from Ruth and Ed on top. There was a utility bill, a personal letter, a payment to JCPenney's, and yes, a poet letter addressed to Ruth. After finding this, they resealed the letter and put it back in the mail. The next morning, Ed brought that very same letter back to the police after it had been delivered to their house. The same day, police started to try and match the handwriting to Ruth's. Ruth's office at the phone company was searched, and during this search, police found a book of poetry, a sheet with the poet's handwriting, and a red bandana hidden in her desk. Evidence was building, but they still needed to be 100% sure because all of this was circumstantial. Finally, Chief Lamagnon and his wife got the evidence that they needed when they returned home to find a letter from the poet at their house. The lower half of the letter on the page had been torn, so the next day, a microscopic analysis was done to prove that the bottom of the letter matched a ripped piece of paper found in Ruth's office. They had their evidence. They knew it was Ruth. The question now, was Ed involved? Ed was called in for questioning, and he was confused when he was read his Miranda rights. Police started asking him about his life, his career, and the events involving the poet. After about two hours into the interview, and Captain Hill was confident it wasn't Ed, Captain Hill said, quote, I know who the poet is, end quote. Ed was excited, was like, yes, let's go get him. Ed was then shown pictures of Ruth dropping letters into the mailbox and was told that Ruth had mailed five poet letters to herself in the past week. Ed, of course, was shocked, and to completely eliminate Ed, he had agreed to take a polygraph, and he passed with no issue. Finally, police, along with Ed, went back to their house to search. In the house, they found items such as a writing tablet, carbon paper, a ruler guide, and pieces of a red bandana. They were sure. Ruth was the poet. Later at the end of that day, they met, the police met Ruth at her office. They had asked her to come by the police station to look at mugshots, which was something that they had done before. 
They went down to the police station, but things were going to be different this time. She was read her Miranda rights, and questions similar to Ed started. Her life, her career, and the poet. Eventually, Captain Hill put a stack of letters from the poet on the table and asked if she had written any of those. Ruth, of course, denied it, but then he responded, quote, What if I call you a liar? Because I've got evidence that shows you have. End quote. At first, Ruth is basically like, no, you're crazy, I don't know what you're talking about. But finally, things start to click. She has a faint memory of writing those letters. Hill then says, quote, Ruthie, why? It's time. It's time to tell me why. I'm not mad at you, Ruth. I want to know why you are doing this. End quote. At first, she responds, I don't know. I don't know why I wrote the letters. I don't know why I stabbed myself. I don't know why. But eventually, she admitted that she had done everything. Her kidnapping was staged. She took a bus to get there. She stabbed herself. She wrote the letters. She admitted everything. And after it, she said, quote, I wish I was dead. End quote. Ruth was taken to the hospital and was put under psychiatric watch. And at the same time, police were debating whether or not to press charges because this whole ordeal had cost the department around $400,000. After reviewing the psychological report done by the hospital and doctors, the district attorney made the controversial decision not to press charges. Through her hospital care and psychiatric care, it was eventually revealed that when Ruth was young, an adult neighbor and family friend used a red bandana to tie her up and they sexually assaulted her. This went on for almost an entire year and the man had threatened to kill her if she told anybody. She became convinced the abuse was her fault. During the abuse, she reported that she would, quote, float off to heaven, end quote, essentially trying to disassociate from the horrible things that were happening to her. And this disassociation, it's a common occurrence of victims uh, for tr- who suffer childhood trauma. Doctors, they think that she kept all of this internalized trauma, she kept it inside, locked away, until the stressful situation of Ed being in the hospital combined with the BTK Strangler roaming loose in the area. And at that point, something just snapped, and the poet started. While all of this was shocking, she eventually told her story after years of therapy and treatment. After telling her story, most people responded positively and were sympathetic to what she had been through. Despite the incredible stress that this had put on Ed and Ruth, they stayed together through this, their marriage lasted, and people who interacted with Ruth after this all came out, they saw the human side of her, and they came to understand that this situation, the poet situation, was an extreme psychological reaction to a horrible experience that she had as a child. After this all came to light, Ruth seemingly lived a pretty normal life, She got medical attention, and in 2019, Ruth passed away at the age of 89. And with that, that concludes The Poet of Wichita. This case is insane to me because obviously it's horrible to lie to the police, to create this panic, to make yourself 
a victim of something that you're not a victim of, but at the same time, she was a victim of sexual assault and like when she was a child. So she really did have all of these past traumas and these issues that needed to be addressed. And clearly they weren't. And at some point she just broke psychologically. So it's fascinating. It's, I would love to see, I mean, she's passed away, so I don't know if this is possible, but to maybe like see a scientific study of other cases similar to this or reactions that people create a false sense of reality because of a past trauma, that would be really interesting to learn. But yeah, this case is fascinating. I hope you enjoyed it. And yeah, that concludes this episode. Thank you so much for listening. I think I'm going to start doing personal scandals just sporadically through episodes, depending on how long an episode is and what the vibe of an episode is. I think personal scandals are a good way to end a heavier episode. And this one isn't as heavy as other episodes. So who knows when the next one will be. But if you want your personal scandal read on the podcast, please send that to scandal101podcast at gmail.com. And I am going to post photos related to this case on social media at scandal101podcast on Instagram, Twitter at scandal101pod. On Facebook, search scandal101podcast. You'll find the page there. The website is scandal101podcast.podbean.com. You can find the show notes there as well as in the episode description. And yeah, that's what I've got. I hope you enjoyed this episode. Thanks so much for tuning in. And this has been episode 56 of Scandal 101.